ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. There's a growing number of memoirs of foreigners traveling and working in Putin's Russia. On the individual level, they can be hit or miss, but taken as a whole, they each provide a different slice of life under Putin. In this episode, I talked to Michael Idov about his two years as editor of GQ Russia, the social scene of Moscow's creative class, his reflections on the 2011-2012 protests, and how his experience relates to his Russianness. Also, Michael, along with his wife Lily, wrote the screenplay for Kirill Serebrennikov's Summer, a film about the Soviet rock musician Viktor Soy. Summer was recently screened in Cannes, but Serebrennikov was prevented from attending because he's under house arrest on what many say are totally bogus allegations of fraud. Michael Edov is an award-winning journalist, novelist, and screenwriter. From 2006 to 2012, he was a contributing editor at New York Magazine, where he won three National Magazine Awards for his journalism. From 2012 to 2014, he edited GQ Russia. He's the author of Ground Up, published in 2012, and his new book is Dressed Up for a Riot, Misadventures in Putin's Russia, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Guru. Here's Michael Edov. So, you know, you, you just came out with this this interesting memoir, Dressed Up for a Riot, where you detail your experience working as the editor of GQ Russia. You're basically running this glossy magazine and your time as a screenwriter in Russia. So I, I thought we'd start by just having you talk about why did you write this book this about this period of your life of a few years in Moscow? Well, to be completely honest, I sort of knew that I would probably end up writing something about... Uh my years there as I was going in, because uh, when I started working in Moscow, I did something that I had never done in my life previous to, the, to that, which is I started keeping a diary. Uh, so my entire first year, which was 2012, I have uh, diary entries for uh, pretty much every day. I would just come home from work and just write down everything that have uh, that happened to me, kind of like James Comey style, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like contemporaneous notes. Um, and uh, I didn't have a clear idea why I was doing this, but I felt that there was something extraordinary about the circumstances that I'm in, you know, trying to run a glossy magazine uh, that sort of sucks up to kind of the moneyed elite, institutionally speaking, you know, uh, of, of the country, while also trying to run with the position that's basically, at that point, felt like it was maybe, you know, uh, 
maybe on the verge of a uh, of almost a revolution you know uh, that sense lasted for about three weeks of course <laughs> but those were the three weeks when i made the decision to move to moscow so there we go right yeah and i want to talk a, get more in detail in a bit about all the things you tried to do at gq but first um you know you opened the book by talking about how your your family immigrated to the united states from Moriga, latvia in 1992 and when you were about 16 years old, right? Right. Um, which yeah, I, I, I imagine is a 16. very difficult transition for a, for a teenager to make. Um, and, and it's interesting because you describe, and I think a lot of this book is, is, and you end it like this too, about your kind of wrestling with your identity. And you describe your family's identity as less American than, than the longer Russian. And I found that a really interesting kind of, you know, in-betweenness. So... Talk about, you know, what was your your experience and your family's experience like before and after immigrating to uh, the United States? Well, I mean, before and after immigrating, that's... So basically, describe your entire life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, just the, the transition in terms yeah, it's of a, like yeah, growing I, up. I know. It's, <laughs> no, I, I know. It's just, it's like that joke with two books, you know, what they teach you in the Harvard Business School and what they don't teach you in the Harvard Business School. Um, anyway, um, let's see. Well, the thing is, you know, my and my family's sense of identity is pretty flimsy to begin with because I mean, consider who we are. You know, I'm a Rus I'm a Russian-speaking uh, Jew from Latvia. You know, um, who has an American citizenship and spent most of his life in America. So, what does that mean? You know, uh, the Russians would not see a fellow Russian in in me. They would see a Jewish guy. Uh, the Latvians would see a Russian, a Russian occupant, occupant you know, because uh, Latvia, you know, has spent, the Baltic states have spent the least amount of time as parts of the Soviet Union because they were annexed uh, in, you know, um, in uh, 1941. And um, uh, as opposed to the rest of the Soviet Union, which was, uh, you know, cohered sort of around uh, 1921, 1922, you know. Um, and uh, so Latvia has always retained a, a kind of a, an identity as an occupied entity as opposed to just kind of a natural part of the Soviet Union. So even though my parents were born in Latvia and I was born in Latvia, they would still, you know, see us as occupants because my grandparents came uh, uh, after the war. Uh, sort of attracted by the new job market. They were both school teachers, and of course, there were new Russian language schools springing up in Latvia. And you know, you can't blame them for uh, being sent to teach in these schools. But of course, now, sort of from the position of a little more experience, I realized that, oh, okay, yeah, the, you know, those schools were probably opening at the expense of all the like Latvian people who were sent. Uh, you know, exiled to like Siberia and Kazakhstan. You know, because because somebody. Uh, had to clear out to, you know, to, to make room for all these Russians streaming in. But, you know, unfortunately, that was, uh, that was how my family ended up in, uh, in Latvia. Um, and so, yeah, so not quite, uh, you know, not quite Russian, not quite Jewish, to be honest, because that's where my Soviet identity would take over, because, uh, of course, you know, my parents and I grew up atheists and, you know, deeply skeptical about sort of the Jewish heritage uh, 
uh, you know, in anything other than just the most basic traditions and uh, uh, things like that. And just generally kind of uh, this whole very Soviet kind of attitude toward Jewishness as kind of a strictly ethnic uh, genetic affiliation, you know. Uh, so you put all that into, you know, into one package and you just ship that package to America at the age of 16. And, you know, so yeah, I had this kind of like, ah, I don't know who the hell I am. Did you guys uh, land in Detroit? Is that where you settled? Uh, Cleveland. Cleveland, Cleveland, that's yes, right. Yes, two yeah. years in Cleveland and then uh, Detroit because I went to University of Michigan and my father started working for Ford. Um, yeah, so basically, you know, th that's a pretty average case, I would say, for like the 90s uh, Russian Jewish immigrant in the United States. This kind of a shaky identity but to begin with so um so i took very eagerly to uh, to an identity as an american but i always understood americanness to be this kind of uh, haphazard synthetic sort of a, a thing which you know ideally i think it is um so yeah so i mean it took me coming to Russia, or as the Russians would have it, coming back to Russia, uh, you know, which is an important distinction, because it didn't feel to me that way, but it, it felt to them like it was a homecoming for me. Um, you know, uh, so it took me coming back to Russia to kind of realize the extent to which I am, I'm basically have become an American. And, and, that's, and that's why this sort of question of identity, which I normally, like, I, I'm not a huge fan of, like, you know, identity questions in, in uh, sort of literature and making like a big deal out of the immigrant experience unless it in involved like running away from bombs falling and you like I, I just feel like you know a lot of people sort of of my ilk who like do this kind of thing uh, engage in kind of um, in in uh, unneeded self exotification you know, of, 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 you know, you know or ba basically just like I feel like a lot of stuff that Russian, like people of Russian descent, write about Russia ends up being actually quite Orientalist. So uh, I, so I hate doing that. But uh, to me, of course, you know, this whole idea of taking a job in Moscow and working there, and uh, um, and and kind of plunging headlong into this whole thing was, of course, a part of like this question of like, okay, let's see how Russian am I? You know, like, am I? You know, do I? fit in there? Do I belong there? Is this my people? You know, so the, the book, I mean, on a, the most private level, the book is, in fact, about kind of trying to answer this uh, for myself. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that the, the Jewish element of it, it, um, you know, it only really, you, you mention it in the beginning. Uh, and then it really only comes up where you have this awful incident in Moscow, where Basically, I, I forget who it was, but one of your literary, your competitors in the you know magazine business. Yeah, yeah, an, uh, uh, an editor at like a nearby. Uh, yeah, right, uh, <laughs> right. Basically, like blatant. Well, at first it's kind of a coded anti-Semitism, but then it's just the second you know comes is like a blatant anti-Semitism. But that's the essence. That's the essence of being a, a Jew in Russia. You only remember you're a Jew when somebody reminds you. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean that that's that that's the thing, and I, I it was a real that's a really interesting moment in in the book not just because of the outcome of it which is really dramatic but also it's one of these points where you're it seemed it sounded like you were kind of reminded of something in terms of you not fitting in um or the limitations um 
of fitting in into that Russianness that um, in, in that particular incident. It kind of like a reminder. Right. It's interesting. Uh, a few days ago, I read uh, a Russian review of my book. Uh, somebody who read it in English, because you know it only came out in English for now, and um, and wrote a review for like a Telegram uh, channel, uh, and they were saying that uh, this book actually resonated with them because it's uh, essentially about a you know somebody who feels like he can't sort of fully fit into any social group and uh and uh and that in fact is something to which like she the, the author of the review thinks like almost everyone can relate which is funny because i wasn't really thinking of that uh you know when i was writing the book i wasn't trying to make it relatable i was basically just trying to do kind of uh, a history of a, a sociological history of uh, the doomed anti-Putin protest movement of 2011-2012 and kind of live in it with my own experiences just so that it, you know, it, that it doesn't become boring, basically. <laughs> um, so you, uh, uh, you've written a novel, uh, you've been a screenwriter, you're a journalist. Um, so, you know, writing is a big, of course, your life. And so how did you get into writing? Um, and what, you know, what age, what drew you to it? Oh, okay. Well, that's one of those, you know, um, I mean, I can answer, but it's like, it's just going to sound cheesy. It's like, oh, I always knew I was going to be. <laughs> it always is. And, it, and, and yeah, I know there's no, there's no like non-cheesy way of answering this, but no, but it's true. I think like when I was five, I wanted to be a paleontologist. And then like when I was six, I stopped wanting to be a paleontologist and uh, decided I'd be a writer. And that was pretty much it. So I think the specifics of that changed because, uh, you know, growing up in the Russian cultural context, you basically think of a writer as a novelist first and foremost like that is the highest form of writing and everything else is uh, everything else kind of feels like compromise and uh, 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 but uh, yeah I mean I was drawn to film very early and I uh, you know I actually went to school for you know for screenwriting and dramatic writing and that's actually uh, so uh, I just and then uh, you know I, I um, so I went to University of Michigan for yeah uh, film school and uh, and then basically I would either have to go to uh, L.A. and just kind of you know do the L.A. thing like you know work in a coffee house and like serve people my script with the coffee and you know or 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 go or go to New York which is what I actually really wanted and back then this is we're talking about the late nineties like you know there wasn't much in the sense of like indie or like like or TV production going on in New York. So I didn't quite know where to go or what to do. So I just kind of sublimated my interest in film into writing about film. And that's what I did for a while for The Village Voice and for Time Out New York and for whoever would have me, basically. And then and then it just kind of like changed into basically writing about everything. Like I, I worked at Pitchfork for a little bit, writing about music. And I... Uh, uh, just became kind of like an all-purpose sort of um, a clutch player, and uh, and in that uh, in that role, I I've uh, I've spent six years at New York Magazine, uh, primarily just 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 writing stories about whatever I would be. You know, I didn't have a beat; like I would just write whatever I'm assigned, and uh, and that actually got a little uh, tiresome after a while because. Um, 
I, I saw kind of my peers just develop their beats and develop their and like cultivate their sources and become like huge sort of uh, uh, specialist in like one thing or another. Like I would work, you know, like I would sit like in the uh, sort of uh, at the desk next to like Gabe Sherman. And I saw him like as he went from just kind of like a cub reporter more or less to this sort of amazing like global level sort of uh, uh authority on you know on fox news and and roger ailes and basically ended up having a lot to do with like huge changes at that network you know so things like that and i envied that a lot because i i didn't have that i just basically either i uh i wasn't good at sort of cultivating sources or I just was generally kind of very scattered. So yeah, I ended up like a solid kind of B team writer, even though I have like, it sounds good. Like I have like three national magazine awards, but if you look at what they are for, like one is for like, you know, an article about circumcision and like the other is like about a profile of a, a pizza maker. Like they, they really like, like my career in journalism makes no sense, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so toward like 2011, I was pretty restless and, uh, and that's when, like, I, I actually decided, like, okay, enough of this. I'm going to make a go of the whole screenwriting thing. And that's, of course, you know, that's exactly when I got this crazy offer to go to Russia. But even even before that, you, you, you know, in 2009, you published this book, this novel, your first novel, Ground Up, um, which is, you know, basically about this kind of, like, you know, hipster, yuppie coffee thing in, in New York. And, and you and your wife uh, literally translated it into Russian. Uh, and then you uh, you got pulled into the Russian literary scene because you were nominated and won uh, a Best Writer of the Year award. And um, talk about that experience because you kind of lay out various kind of figures in the Russian literary scene uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but also the people that you're kind of thrust into. What was that experience like? Well, of course, it was pretty surreal but also you know again I was kind of a tourist there like it was amazing that I won this uh, uh, um, you know this uh, GQ in fact writer of the year award because they have their like man of the year thing and they take it very seriously as opposed to like the American GQ where it's just basically they just have a party I think or like you know and, and, and run some covers with the people that they declare uh, man of the year and that's it and also there's a huge problem with the Russian man of the year awards because they translate man of the year as человек года which is like human of the year as opposed to мужчина года like the actual male you know of the year which is what it means so every year they have to deal with like why don't you nominate women <laughs> like, that's a, are women not people and, and it's really like i i was laughing at it in 2010 when i won this thing and i didn't know that by 2012 i would have to like be on the you know on the other side of it like getting shit for uh you know for not nominating women and i actually like made this sort of half-ass attempt to rename it machine but like the word machine it's ter it's a it's a terrible word in Russian. It's like there's something really kind of icky about it. Uh, I I can't even like explain why, but it just uh, you know it's like um, yeah it 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 would really sound like kind of like a male of the year, which which is just absurd. But anyway, so yeah, so I won this thing, and uh, um, so it's funny because when I came to pick up the prize, I uh, I got introduced to a lot of people who would end up being kind of uh, almost like the main characters of the book 
uh, later, uh, most importantly, Xenia Sobchak, who's kind of like the the recurring character of the book, but it's not because of some sort of dramatic serendipity. It's just because the Russian cultural scene is very small. And this is something I cover in the book as well. That I think it's like the same kind of 200 people that just kind of keep popping up in various sort of guises and <laughs> various iterations, just doing pretty much everything. So like Senia Subject, she would, you know, uh, pop up as a journalist and as a TV host and as, uh, uh, you know, she would host these ceremonies and then she, you know, uh, a politician and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, most recently, the sort of quote unquote presidential candidate, um, which is kind of a great uh, end to her character arc, let's put it this way. So I was actually very happy that I, I was able to uh, put in a couple of words about her presidential campaign into the book, like right as the book was going to print, because that was obviously like kind of the culmination of her whole thing, you know. So yes, I would get introduced to Subchak, uh, and there was this uh, kind of hilarious incident uh, where, you know, uh, she does this thing, or she used to do this thing. I guess now she's too respectable to do it. That like every year when she would host this, these awards, she would like French kiss someone on stage. Like you know, and uh, so that year that was me. And so next, and since no one knew, you know, outside of like this very tight circle of literary people, uh, no one knew who the hell I was. Um, you know, like next. Uh, morning, I wake up and I'm in all the tabloids. Uh, uh, it's like Xenia Subject kisses married American writer and it's, you know, all that nonsense. And uh, yeah, and I met uh, Sergei Minaev, who is this kind of epitome of like this comfortably kind of wealthy pro-Putin uh, uh, best-selling author, which I think is the, like that I think is the optics that most of my like Russian opposition friends would uh, come to see me through, you know, despite my kind of increasingly desperate attempts to join their ranks. I think that sort of there was almost like a class issue there, you know, because I think they felt as kind of sort of disturbed and uneasy around me as I felt around Minaev, who I thought was like, okay, like this is, this guy's like the, just kind of this caricature of selling out, you know. There seems that's what's interesting about all these characters um, in, in the book is there's a lot of entrepreneurship in the sense of people are kind of, you know, selling themselves in a variety of different ways, taking various opportunities, transforming themselves in, in many respects. But also there's the whole, at least the way you painted a whole kind of drama of this small circle. And, and it is really um, a, a kind of ethnography of the so-called Moscow creative class, for the lack of a better term. And and I have to say that uh, you know I said this in the email to you that they don't they don't come across as the most endearing group, <laughs> um, and so what what did you what did you learn about this class you know that's gotten so much attention in 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 American media at least in two thousand eleven two thousand twelve uh, and uh, in running what did you learn from from this environment and running in these circles of these people? Well, first of all, because it's so small, I think these people tend to get kind of stir crazy you know there's just there's almost never anyone truly new you know like 10 years pass and it's just the same cast of characters you know and it's i think it's kind of depressing and yeah you're right everyone's a jack of all trades because yeah. the, because the assumption is that 
everyone is so sort of because they don't trust anyone else to do anything for them so basically the kind of the understanding is that okay we have to create a westernized culture we that we want to live in like it's up to us so we are the ones who are going to actually make like the you know create all the like bars and the cafes and the clothing brands and the books and the films and the music and the theaters and it's all basically the same kind of you know for us by us type of a, a situation yeah and and there's um it's funny because like they they rightfully feel like okay they are the creative elite you know like they are deciding what the rest of the country watches and eats and drinks and talks about but at the same time there's uh and that was my huge discovery i think over these three years that i've spent living in moscow is just how much self-loathing is is there in that crowd you know and uh, it's just they're really untethered because they don't have role models that are older than them that's a huge that's a huge issue because basically everyone's useful experience cuts off in the year 1991 right because no one wants to learn anything from anyone who was doing something like you know food service industry or or a hotel or like a you know or or clothing in the soviet times so is there is there yeah. a feeling that there's nothing to learn or is there a kind of just well, like you can pick rejection. and like you can pick and choose sure. and kind of ironically sort of appropriate things like the whole you know recent phenomenon of like this kind of uh, uh, lower class provincial eighties kind of Adidas tracksuit aesthetic that like Gosha Rubchinsky and the Vitmong guy was like are are, are peddling uh, you know all over the world and it's actually like globally successful but uh, which is amazing to see like you know just to uh, especially like I was in New York uh, promoting the book this February and there was this huge uh, Burberry window like at the Burberry store and they had like a Burberry Gosha Rubchinsky kind of collaboration and I was like oh wow that makes total sense because he's using this sort of the Russian Gopnik uh, aesthetic and like Burberry of course is like the you know like the Chav favorite so it's like this is where like it's uh or at least it used to be so i was like oh okay so this is like the british hooligan aesthetic like means the you know meets the russian hooligan aesthetic and all of this results in like a three thousand dollar fucking scarf or something. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of uh. fascinating this whole thing but anyway so yeah so there are things to plunder uh, for sure in the soviet past but what somebody you know in russia lacks is like basically being 25 and having a 50-year-old guy who's doing the same thing you do to look up to. So so this, so they end up looking, uh, you know, looking to the West for cues for just about everything. So it's it all becomes this kind of a very sort of depressing exercise in let's make a little Berlin out of this and let's make a little Brooklyn out of that. And let's, you know, so all of this is just kind of, it's just all like simulacra and and that that to me gets really that that's one of the things that got really annoying about moscow because you know like i sort of there are a couple of things that i say in the book that i have been repeating quite a bit but it's like yeah the, the this one thing that a late friend of mine uh came up with this uh, um um 
formulation that's like every Moscow in New uh, every restaurant in Moscow is a theme restaurant. The theme is that you're not in Moscow, and and it's it's just completely precise. Like that's that's the problem, you know. Like like what what is uh, Moscow? Like basically, what is the what is the aesthetic that would denote Moscow to all these people, or denote Russia to all these people that wouldn't make them puke? You know, like that's that's the question they have no answer for. That's you know they they have no like heritage to uh to look sort of back on like you know in america like some the, the hipster culture can always kind of look back on like some sort of like 19th century like you know coal miner or lumberjack aesthetic or something and in russia they you know they can't do that they can't just like ideally they would be picking up like the grandfather's like world war ii uniform or something you know but but what they're doing is no they're just using the same you know oregon state uh, lumberjack kind of inspiration. you know it's it i mean it a couple of things that, that's kind of strike me about this like thinking about it in a historical sense is is one you know this this kind of self-loathing uh and feelings of isolation um and but also have this amazing um well of creativity is been a characteristic of say the russian intelligentsia for a very long time um, and i'm actually surprised they don't actually look at the 19th century in a in a way to it's particularly you know in the late stars period how much similar creativity there was um and and so they kind of fall into this his, historical thing but at the same time i'm kind of struck and and this is just an impression i get from from your telling and you can correct me is that at the same time, there isn't a lot of, there doesn't seem to be a lot of solidarity. The solidarity within seems to be very thin. There's a lot of competition right, um, within. Right. Well, that, yes, that's the but other that's, part that surprises well, me. Well, no, it shouldn't be surprising because, I mean, it's, it's the classic liberal problem of sort of how you act after you lose. And, you know, and since the last several years have been just nothing but like one prolonged drubbing that they had to endure, like this is, you know, it's unfortunately with like with the liberals and uh, I, I use the term freely because, uh, you know, I consider myself one of them. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not a slur. I just don't know how else to put it. Like it always ends up being this, you know, circular uh, firing squad, right? Like it's uh, like uh, once you lose, like you start like debating the purity of your own ranks and who sold out and who, you know, and, and, uh, and who your like moral authorities are and just... And it's also it's it's a completely exhausting process. This constant relitigation of your own legitimacy, but uh, you know, I mean, look at what we've been going through under Trump. I mean, it's like the like half of the American Twitter is like this now. You know, like a lot a lot of a lot of these things are very recognizable to me after having endured them in Russia in like 2013 as the reaction to the protests really hit you know like so now you're you're looking at like you know the sort of these like twitter mobs just kind of like you know piling on like people for making like for like one bad tweet or something like this and this is exactly like just you could just see that this is like post-traumatic stress disorder kind of making itself known it's very sad but it's it's not a specifically russian thing i think it's it's somehow somehow this is how democrats process uh uh defeat <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you know it actually also reminded me and this is just my my own kind of personal background is that you know in the late in the 1990s, 
uh, in alternative punk and like punk the punk scene, for example, where you had a couple of breakthrough acts and and punk was you know becoming more kind of mainstream, respectable, and marketed and stuff. In a lot of the underground like punk press, you know, in zines and maximum rock and roll and all this stuff, there was a similar kind of you know kind of everyone denouncing each other as oh, like yeah. no, who's no, selling no, out who yeah, isn't yeah. who what you know who's <laughs> wearing what it was all of this kind of crisis of of defining like right, who you right. were when it's under attack right from the can outside. you listen to the offspring now or is yes it, exactly yeah, yeah yeah no believe me i'm like i mean you know i you know as i said i used to write for pitchfork and i was there and then like in the mid aughts just for the height of the like the rockest versus like poptimist wars you know we're basically like i think i think the consensus now is that we are over the whole like sellout idea because like there's nowhere to sell out basically it's like now because now it's like when an indie band or like a punk band sells like you know licenses the music to to like lingerie ad or something we pretty much at this point we go like good for them like go go make that money you know because because there are no yeah be, well because there are no other ways of like making any cash <laughs> you know it's like there, there are no major labels or you know any, any like you know any of these ways so but but yeah i this is a very familiar um um kind of ethic of just uh, kind of constant relitigation of like yeah who you like who sold out and who uh, who is who hasn't yeah <laughs> this goes to something else that i you know there's two concepts that you you refer to in your book that I think speaks to this to a large extent. One is this uh, word loch, which is like something you say it's something between sucker and loser. Um, and then uh, which is translate, I love your translation, unshakable hands with the ball. No, unshake hands with a ball. <laughs> Un yes. Oh yeah, unshake, sorry, unshake hands with a ball. <laughs> um, how did these two, these two ideas, uh, you know, fit in within this, your kind of perception of and, and participation in these circles? Well, loch is just like a, kind of a, an old Russian slang word, I think, uh, I think coming from like you know prison slang, uh, so yeah, so and it just means sucker basically. It's like loch is the guy who's on the receiving end of a scam or a con, you know, uh, like gullible that sort of thing. So you know, uh, and um, and there's just like there's a tiny tinge of sympathy uh, in that word as well. So it's not the worst thing to be, you know. Uh, because uh, you can say when you've made a mistake or just like like I uh, like you know I was yeah I was being a loch you know and it's, it's kind of, and it was kind of like there's almost like a bit of a like a self excuse in it um, and uh, but I felt of course like a loch when uh, you know when I just kind of came in like cocky saying like oh we're gonna change the you know the magazine or we're gonna institute re these revolutionary changes at GQ we're gonna make more make it more democratic we're going to focus on um, on lo on long reads and you know, deeply reported features and then basically just having people for like the entirety of my first year just kind of like politely take me sort of aside and explain to me that well actually this is all about 
making sure that the advertisers don't leave and like advertisers don't like long features and advertisers don't like any surprises so you know <laughs> this kind of thing so basically even though i thought that i knew how the system worked i realized that i was just being completely naive and gullible so that's why like the third chapter which is the first kind of uh, details my first weeks at the uh, at the magazine is called The Law. Uh, and Nirko Pashatne, the on shake hands with, well, that's, uh, that's what we are, you know, we have talked about basically in terms of relitigation of legitimacy in the opposition, right? It's like basically just this constant argument, like who, who, with whom can you shake hands and with whom you can't, you know, it's like, like with Minai of like, you can't, or maybe you can, because he wrote this or that, that sounds vaguely, um, you know, progressive. Oh, but wait, uh, wasn't his TV show instrumental in uh, getting the May 6 prisoners arrested because they he voluntarily uh, gave up the video recordings of the uh, of the protest crowd that uh, you know the detectives then used to identify um, the culprits, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, so there you know uh, there's a lot being. I, I mean, I've I've I think about it a lot. There's not a lot about about it in the book, but there's essentially no institute of reputation in in Russia. Everyone can reinvent themselves on a dime. That's why I was saying that actually there was a moment when uh, Vladislav Surkov could have could have very easily reinvented himself as a, as like a protest hero. Honestly, I think I feel like people like most people would be ready for that. I mean, the same people who were absolutely ready to like embrace Medvedev for the second term uh, in you know in late two thousand eleven, and it was in fact the sort of. All, all these, you know, s sort of supposedly opposition um, uh, media, like uh, TV Rain, uh, for example, they were all, in the summer of 2011, they were all absolutely reinventing themselves as Medvedev's base for, uh, you know, for, for the second term. And that's why, that's why, part of why it hit them so hard. Uh, when Medvedev just showed up in September 2011 and announced that he wasn't even running for second term because they realized they were the lochs, you know, like they like they've been completely had uh, because they they thought okay, you know, like yeah, this guy is Putin's handpicked uh, successor, but like look, we're gonna have incremental change, we're okay with that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so so yeah, so like the question of Rukopajatnost is uh, is really kind of funny because like you know some media are supposed to be like oh you shouldn't give an interview to russia today but it's completely more than okay to talk to like echo Moscow, you know echo echo of moscow which is like all you know like once you start following the money it, it's all like goes back to either kremlin uh friendly oligarchs or directly like you know uh, the state money or like, you know, Gazprom or something. So uh, there's, in terms of just like where the money comes from, there's very little um, rhyme or reason to sort of deciding like that these uh, outlets are legitimate and these are not. Because basically the only thing that truly works is judging uh, the Russian media on their deeds and not where the money comes from. Because all the money in Russia essentially, in a sense, comes from the same source. But it, at the same time, it sounds like a really, um, it's a really fluid situation in terms of that where, you know, a person who could be uh, a taboo today could be the next hero in a few weeks and then also go back to being a villain. And then also there's there's a lot of disorientation, it seems, too, in the sense of, you know, at the same time, a lot of these people, you have to live. 
well, you know, yeah, you have it, to work. Well, yes, and also everyone constantly keeps uh, suspecting everyone else to be like this double, triple, quadruple agent, you know. So, like, so, so when you we were talking about like you know Navalny, okay, who's de facto like the only legitimate uh, opposition leader left, and yet like. There are so many Kremlin people that I've talked to, like mostly from Medvedev's sort of silo of power, because I don't know anyone from Putin's silo. But but there's so many of them that are completely convinced that Navalny is uh, Putin's, uh, you know, uh, puppet, and that and that like basically Putin just uses Navalny to kind of uh, basically put his enemies on notice through like basically you know like just. This classic, I mean, this is just one example because there can be like a hundred counter examples to that. What I mean is just, it's not, I'm not trying to uh, sort of debate this on like on facts. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to make a point that there's just this constant conspirology that uh, that kind of poisons the discourse completely. So there's basically there's no point talking about anyone because whoever the like, the, you know, like the upcoming mayor of Moscow race. OK, there's Yashin is running. Um, Varlamov uh, has just announced his uh, oh, he did. running. Yeah, Boy. Varlamov is running and the like, Gutkov is running. OK, so all of them are like opposition figures all of them are variously supposedly tainted by this or that and you know and state money and state contracts and you know and uh, um so exactly how managed this a stage managed this whole thing is i have no idea my head hurts from like talking about it so uh, so i tried yeah you know <laughs> I tend not to give the authorities that much credit, like in terms of their ability to well, manage. Well, uh, I saw a good tweet today saying that, like, you know, if you look at how Raskomnadzor's uh, sort of banning of Telegram has been going, like, you know, we haven't installed Trump. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I think, uh, yeah, I think Alexei Kovalev said something okay, about that. Yeah. Like, this is, you know, this is a, this is supposedly the government that created, you know enacted a sophisticated cyber campaign against <laughs> um, right, but this also this this whole thing also goes to another issue and that is you know you are there and you, you recount um the the protests in 2011 and 2012 which is an incredibly exciting time and incredibly optimistic time it's people are getting uh, engaged in politics who were apathetic before or just kind of on the margins um and and and, you, you know, you, if we both remember the, the coordinating council that a lot of activists put together, it quickly kind of collapsed into all of this kind of, you know, clashes. And there was coming together to unify was very brief and ephemeral. And so and then at the same time, you, you, you have some comments about how the protests were uh, being covered by English language media. And, and you say that, you know, they were buying the most romantic version of what we were selling so how do you reflect on those protests uh, today and, and your experience in them, but also how they were presented in the, in the press? You know, uh, a lot of people in Russia think that American media are stage managed just as the Russian media are. And, uh, and there's something that I constantly try to explain that sometimes goes over well and sometimes it doesn't, that the American media aren't stage managed. They're just addicted to a narrative. And uh, so there's no, uh, there's, you know, there's no one coming from the White House dictating what the, you know, what the news of the day, uh, like what the take of the day is, except, of course, Fox News, where that actually happens, <laughs> you know, but, um, uh, but the problem that is that what what's 
you know, this addiction to an easy black and white narrative does the exact same thing without any need for government control. Because basically there's this baseline narrative of America, which is, uh, you know, all beings yearn to be free. And everything, every sort of, every democratic seeming movement around the world is going to be seen through these black and white kind of... Uh, 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 freedom above all narratives and and you know no matter how many times America burns itself on this with like the Mujahideen or you know whoever right I like they, they they will still fall for it and I'm not I'm not saying that you know the opposition weren't the good guys it's just that um in in Russia's case the opposition is just small and weak and that's just the way it's always been and uh, uh except for like a couple of weeks um in you know in december of uh, of 2011 and what was different about that spate of the protests and this is something i go into quite some detail in the in the book that was an attempt to have leaderless protests. That was actually, if you remember 2011, that was the year of, you know, Tahrir and uh, the Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street. And yeah, and there was some genuine horizontality to these uh, protests. And uh, weirdly enough, a lot of the American media did not see or did not bother to see that. So what they did was they just went for comment to uh, the same cast of kind of opposition characters that they've been used to. And this is what everyone, including, you know, like David Remnick at the New Yorker were slightly guilty of because, I mean, Remnick is an amazing um, expert on Russia, but he had his sort of, you know, buddies like, you know, like uh, Alexei Venediktiv, uh, from Echo of Moscow that he used to like go to for co for political comment in like the 90s and aughts and he would like reflexively like keep going to the same people not noticing that in these specific protests all of these people were just as blindsided as the Putin's uh, camp they were actually completely irrelevant like there was no and as tragic as you know Boris Nemtsov's killing was uh, in in 2015 um by 2012, you know, when he was uh, uh, actually giving speeches at like the Sakharov Square and you know and, uh, Sakharov Pro Prospect and um, all these uh, big rallies, uh, he stuck out like a sore thumb because uh, the exciting part was the rally itself. No one actually—that's the truth of it—was that no one went out into the streets and into those squares to hear Boris Nemtsov speak or Kasparov or Rushkov or you know any of these guys like they were all yesterday's news and the problem is that the of the generation that could have come up and replaced them the only person putting in like the daily hard work was Navalny and as a result Navalny is there and everyone else is largely irrelevant at this point. Though I, I do have to say that you know one of the going along with this kind of missing the the larger picture is that i mean you know i think a lot of those people who were involved uh in 2011 2012 uh you know going to these protests i think a lot of their 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 uh, civil activism civic activism actually continued you know up until this day in but in a way that we don't you know as observers tend not to really notice 
Um, you know, there's a lot of ecological stuff going on. Um, there's a lot of, you know, on the ground level. Uh, and, and it'd be, I wish there'd be more, you know, taking your, your point, there'd be more attention to the legacies of that moment rather than kind of shutting it down. Oh, absolutely. It's just, uh, you know, again, for that sort of basic narrative that we're all, you know, addicted to, like, it's just not sexy enough, you know, to uh, to write about, you know, the ecological uh, issues and just see, feel small after you've had like 120,000 people, you know, like chanting for Putin's ouster on on a city square. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree entirely. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, I generally wish there would be far more nuance in in the way Russia is covered, especially now that you know, now now that there's like this this myth of this you know ruthless Russian efficiency, uh, which just makes everyone in Russia just like die laughing, you know, because uh, <laughs> this is basically how they're seen in the West. This kind of like oh they you know they hacked the elections and they're, you know, just like this was, uh, you know, a brilliant sort of evil chess game. It was like, no, it wasn't. It was like a game of Chapayev, you know. If uh, if our listeners don't know, Chapayev is like a Russian kids game that's played with a chess set, but basically you just throw the pieces at each other. So, and, and finally, you know, after you, you uh, had this experience at GQ, you started doing, actually doing a lot of screenwriting for television but but also you wrote the you and your wife wrote the um screenplay for uh Kirill Serebrennikov's um movie Summer which um and I I thought I asked you about Serebrennikov and you know he is under house arrest he has been I think uh, allegations of what embezzlement or something yeah, like yeah, this just it's, completely absurd yeah, yeah completely yeah, yeah. but but uh, so I thought you you know since you are were involved in in you know writing the script for this movie um, you know, what's the status of the film? What was your experience like writing this? Because the film is about you know, Victor Svoy and the Leningrad war scene. Yeah, it's it's the movie is really about the uh, sort of this young, exciting uh, rock scene, like underground rock scene in uh, in the you know then Leningrad, now Saint Petersburg, um, in the year of nineteen eighty one, and uh, it's a musical of sorts. There's a ton of music, and it's just and uh, Kirill Serebrenikov uses uh, his Gogol Center um, theaters actors in it, so there's just a ton of this kind of like really kind of kinetic, youthful energy in it, and it's, uh, um, I mean, Lily and I were really privileged to to be part of this project, but uh, yeah, the movie is you know. It's, uh, the movie is going to Cannes. It's it's going to be in main in main competition, uh, which is amazing. And uh, the only you know problem is that Kirill is still under house arrest. He's missed the premiere of his opera Hansel and Gretel in Stuttgart. He's missed the premiere of his uh, ballet about Nureyev in the Bolshoi. It's it's a very strange case uh, because basically his his art is being exhibited, uh, you know, in Russia. But, you know, but this is sort of the new um, the new paradigm is that, you know, no one gets accused of what they are actually being accused of, you know. <laughs> right. So. Uh, so, yeah. So he is uh, he's been suffering you know, this uh, kind of these absurd, uh, easily disprovable uh, and many times disproved in court uh, by his uh, legal team embezzlement charges. And um, um, yeah, I, I just I really hope this nightmare ends 
for him soon. I mean, that's all I can say. You know? So the film, the film, because the film has been finished then. Uh, the the film was frozen when he was arrested uh, with a few days to go. And then uh, basically a couple more scenes were shot using existing uh, director's notes and uh, the stuff that they had rehearsed before. So they just kind of shot them on something like autopilot, you know. And 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 then he, of course, had, uh, had a chance to... Um, um, had a chance to edit the movie while under house arrest. That was Michael Edov, an award-winning journalist, novelist, and screenwriter. From 2006 to 2012, he was a contributing editor to New York Magazine, where he won three National Magazine Awards for his journalism. From 2012 to 2014, he edited GQ Russia. He's the author of Ground Up, published in 2002, and his new book is Dressed Up for a Riot. Misadventures in Putin's Moscow, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Guru. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! i